Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Susan Vreeland, who died on August 23, 2017, at the age of 71, was the best-selling author of several novels, most of which focused on art, specifically painting. A high school English teacher for many years, she was past 40 when she published her first novel, What Love Sees. After her best-selling Girl in Hyacinth Blue in 1999, she went on to write six more works of fiction over the course of the next 15 years. I had a chance to interview Susan Vreeland on January 24, 2002, when she was on tour for her third novel, The Passion of Artemisia, about the female Baroque painter Artemisia Gentileschi. What prompted you to move into the realm of painting in terms of your writing? It was a natural thing for me to do. I've always had paintings discussed in my home. I was uh, brought up in a family that had several painters. Although I'm not an art historian, I've always been an art lover. Paintings seem to offer me a way in to lives and stories that I could tell. Girl in Hyacinth Blue, we'll talk about first. It's about Vermeer. What drew you to that particular artist? I mean, I love Vermeer, and he's a wonderful artist, you know, just amazing. My name is Dutch, but I don't know anything about my personal family heritage. I can't trace my family heritage, but I, I was at a time in my life when I wanted to find my roots a little bit. I, I wrote that during an illness. I thought that there might be something in Dutch character that could give me some solidity or strength. So in finding out about my heritage, it was natural for me to turn to Dutch art as a way to imagine people who might have been my relatives. Vermeer certainly uh, is an important artist of the time. When you were working on it and doing your research, how easy or hard was it to, in a way, become a character of that era? And I guess it also translates into passion of Artemisia as well. There's a point at which history and records stop and a fiction writer has to invent. It was easy for me to study Vermeer because relatively little is known about him. And that, to me, made him a knowable figure. If I had chosen Rembrandt, also Dutch, there are thousands of paintings. I could never know them all. There is so much more written about him, and he lived a longer life. It would have been too sprawling, I think. So Vermeer was, was contained by the amount of information about him, and even less information was available about Artemisia. In the case of Vermeer, you invented a daughter. Yes. How did the art historians take to that? 
I had one critical review in Art in America for um, inventing. Well, he had daughters. He had 11 children. But I just selected one, gave her two names, one that I preferred. I called her Magdalena Elizabeth, and her name was really Elizabeth. I didn't really do that much invention there other than to make her want to paint. But I thought that that might be very natural for at least one of his children to want to follow him. Well, that will bring us directly to Artemisia. But before we get there, Mm -hmm. I have a couple other quick questions about Vermeer. The first is uh, David Hockney recently came out with this theory that Vermeer used camera obscura to create his paintings. You did, you've done a lot of research on Vermeer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What, what do you think of the idea? Well, it's, it's highly possible, and there are, there are other art critics who have said the same thing. At the Metropolitan Museum, there was an exhibition called Vermeer and the School of Delft, and they had a camera obscura there. And I looked through it, and I couldn't quite grasp what... I was seeing through the camera that I wasn't seeing or noticing when I looked at the subject set up as a still life just across the room. But apparently it gave them a sense of depth of field. Well, I got the impression that perhaps what Hockney was also talking about, maybe I'm wrong, was the ability to somehow project the camera obscura on the canvas so that they wouldn't have to imagine they could kind of trace it. Yes, I don't know if that was actually done. Because certainly, Vermeer didn't need an image to trace, to get the lines right. You know, I think it was more in the sense of narrowing his focus and looking deep into a subject matter. The other question about Vermeer concerns the fact that when Girl in Hyacinth Blue came out, so did Girl with a Pearl Earring. Were you when you found out about this other book? I, were, were you upset until uh, you realized the books would help each other? <laughs> well, Tracy and I both shared with each other the idea that at that moment we both had the same reaction. Oh no, I'm doomed! And slowly, well, maybe not so slowly, but eventually we began to see that the other person's book was a benefit to ours because booksellers would would say when they bought Girl with a Pearl Earring, oh, do you know about Girl in Hyacinth Blue and vice versa. Likewise, reviewers then had an angle, a built-in angle of two Vermeer books. We're friends, but we weren't then. We didn't know each other. And it's just delightful that it developed that way. We even signed each other's books. <laughs> Susan Vreeland, Moving on to your latest novel, The Passion of Artemisia, which concerns a painter named Artemisia. Uh, why don't you pronounce her yes. last name? Gentileschi. Gentileschi, who was one of the first well known women painters. She also was, insofar as we know, the only painter who used the style of Caravaggio, That's which, right. uh, which is uh, using a lot of shadows and a particular light source. Is that correct? Yeah, strong light source. Artemisia is unusual in that she actually did what your fictional character in the Vermeer book wanted to do, and the way you uncovered her is because someone had read that book and said, wait a second, I know an artist who did it. Tell that story. Yes. I was teaching 
English literature and ceramics in a high school in San Diego. And my ceramics studio was next to the art studio. And that teacher also taught art history. I used to cut through her classroom to get to the faculty women's room. She and I were great friends, and during our lunch hours, we often viewed videos of artists. And after she finished reading Girl in Hyacinth Blue, uh, she knew I was casting around for another subject matter, and so she said, I know who your next book is going to be about. I, w I just stopped in my tracks, and she just told me uh, very little about her. Art history textbooks now maybe have one or two images by her and a couple paragraphs. But that was better than uh, 10 years ago when Artemisia and no other female artists were, me were mentioned other than Mary Cassatt. Well, I've, I looked uh, up Artemisia in Janssen's, my old Janssen's History of Art, uh -huh. and in an old world book that I have hanging around. She's not there. Neither is her father, Orazio. Is Orazio's painting on the ceiling, does that exist? The one that's yes. in the book? Yes. Okay. The one that he did with the collaborator, Agostino Tassi. It, it is in Rome. It's only visitable one day a month. I was there July 2nd and learned that the day that it was visible to the public was July 1st. <laughs> so I didn't see it, but i seen pictures of it. Is the woman who you claim is Artemisia, is she actually in that painting? Yes. That's what art historians say, particularly Mary Garrard, who uh, wrote the first extensive art history of Artemisia. Well, let's talk a little about Artemisia, because she's a fascinating character, both in history and, of course, in your book. Her birth and death dates I have here are, uh, what is it, uh, 1593 to 1653. Uh, according to you, and I guess history, she lived, she grew up in Rome, she lived yeah. for a time in Florence, and a time in Naples as well. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, her father was a, an actual painter. Do we know, have any idea, what drew her to be a painter like her father and to buck the trend? Or is that purely from the imagination of Susan Vreeland? That has to come from imagination. There's very little that she wrote, or nothing that her father wrote, particularly about her, other than a letter to a member of the Medici family saying, when my daughter comes to Florence, she has tremendous talent. Will you see that she gets a viewing? So that's about all we have to go on, other than knowing that it was he who began teaching her, perhaps about the age 15. Her first couple of paintings were in her teens, maybe three paintings, that are known and extant now. Much of her work has disappeared, has been misattributed to somebody else, even her father. So now she, at the age of 17, went on trial, where there was a trial where a man was accused of rape. Was that man Agostino Tassi, as in your book? That's correct. I took the scenes of the trial almost directly from the trial record, which has been translated. Now, the, the movie Artemisia, which came out a few years ago, mm -hmm. pretty much says it was her lover, she wanted to be raped, and all of that. Obviously, you took a very different view of that. 
I did. I was, I have to say, much influenced by a website of Gloria Steinem and Jermaine uh, Greer, who were much offended even by that film. Reading the trial record, there was no indication that she was protecting Agostino. She proclaimed in court that he had raped her numerous times. In the film, she took the stance of saying, no, I wasn't raped by him. You see, so that, that to me is too much of a liberty. All fiction writers and screenwriters have to take liberties to fill in the gaps. But that seemed a bit egregious. Now, there isn't that much else that's known about Artemisia beside that. We know uh, that she was friends with Galileo, with, uh, what is it, Michelangelo's nephew, with Cosimo de' Medici. How do we know that, particularly Galileo? Well, there was a letter I read by her that was preserved. It's in Mary Garrard's book, in which she's asking Michelangelo's grandnephew to intercede for her with Medici, who hadn't paid for a painting. She starts by saying something like, although in Florentine language, I know you're going to think that I haven't written to you for a while, and now that I need something, I'm writing to you. But on the basis of our longstanding friendship, would you do this favor for me? There's also some indications from historians who were describing events at the Pitti Palace that perhaps Galileo and Artemisia were often in pageants together, theatrical performances that were evening entertainment in the court. That showed her friendship with Galileo. Now, as far as her friendship with Michelangelo Buonarroti, he was, in fact, the first one to commission a piece of art from her, and that is now on the ceiling of the uh, Casa Buonarroti in Florence. In your book... You posit that she married a man named Pietro Stasi, went to Florence, that he was pretty much selected by her father to get her out because she had such a reputation, had suffered so greatly from the rape. How real is that painter? And is there any research you found to show that the marriage was arranged in that way? Or is, again, is that a fiction? The arranged marriage is fact. The one person other than her father who spoke in her behalf during the trial, was a neighbor, Giovanni Stiatesi. It is Giovanni Stiatesi's brother that Artemisia marries, and that much is known. The fact that their marriage did not last is surmised by a letter that she had written years later to the Accademia dell'Arte in Florence, asking if they knew if her husband was still alive. They didn't divorce, but they did split. Well, they couldn't divorce. <laughs> That's right. He was a painter, but of much lesser rank. And the attention paid to her and the commissions by the Medici was pretty hard on an Italian man. Susan Vreeland, a recent review of this book said that you erred in the side of kind of a proto-feminism, that you made her feminism too great Based upon what you tell me, that she was the first woman to go into the academy in Florence, that she was willing to leave her husband and create a career as an itinerant painter herself, 
that she stood up for herself wherever she was and she painted what she wanted to paint rather than perhaps the styles of the times, though she did adapt, tells me that the reviewer was probably on the wrong track and you were on the right. Question, is there any indication other than those facts about a, a level of feminism there? One, that I didn't include in the book because I thought it sounded too modern. I have to go back to these letters that are in Mary Garrard's book, and one was to a patron named Dawn Rufo, and in it she says, uh, this is a letter that is accompanying a painting that is going to be delivered to him. And she says something like, let that show you what a woman can do. So it's, it's on the basis of that line and on the basis of her paintings themselves that I see her that way. And the paintings themselves are remarkably realistic in a certain respect of the, women, the woman's body, right? She had the advantage over men of being able to paint women in the nude. The Florentine Academy did not allow their registered female models to do that. And so she had a, a very realistic portrayal of women with wrinkles and sags and asymmetric shapes where uh, a breast would be pendulous or something. And the, that was an enormous advantage. You have to get inside the character. How do you get the character to do what you want and think the way the character thinks and still maintain the sense that this is, after all, the early 17th century and women in particular? We know very little about how they thought because there's very little information to be gleaned. All the writings were by men. Right. It has to be surmising it to a large extent. I was invited to do that by Virginia Woolf in her book, A Room of One's Own, when she says women's history is going to have to be discovered and written in to the record by invention. Oh, that was such an invitation. That was a juicy invitation to me. But I don't think that I strayed too far from the Artemisia whom we see in her work. How did you know about what they ate? Uh, there uh, were two sources. That's an interesting question. And also how they decorated their food with uh, peacock feathers, if it was a peacock liver pate, through the still lifes painted at the time. She didn't paint still lifes, but there were plenty of people painting them. These gorgeous tables with fruit. They were one source, and then the other was uh, historic cuisine books. You have her going to London toward the end of the book. Did that happen? Yes. It did? Her, yes. She was called there by her father, who had been painting for Charles I. Her father was doing an enormous ceiling at Greenwich and died before it was finished. She finished it for him, actually stayed in, in England for a while. One self-portrait is owned now by the Queen of England and it's in Kensington Palace. You said before that 10 years ago, nobody could find anything about Artemisia in the art books. Today they can. What happened in those intervening 10 years? Was it Gloria Steinem? What, what would have occurred to have changed the appraisal of well, this painter? I think the women's movement and Gloria Steinem had a, had a great deal to do with it. Uh, Germaine Greer's book in 1979, The Obstacle Race, included many obstacles to 
to women, not the least of which was marriage, distractions of love, but the inability to obtain training. Yet, Germaine Greer listed just snippets of information about hundreds of women who were painting. And that seemed to open the floodgates for graduate students in universities to start digging. When you're writing this book, it sounds as if you use several secondary sources for your research. What primary sources did you use? Material that others did not use? Was it just going to Florence and Rome? Oh, I had finished numerous drafts of the book before I went to Florence and Rome, and I, uh, I don't speak Italian, and the reason for me going was primarily visual research. There's a scene that takes place on the bell tower, top of the bell tower in, in Florence. I had to see what they could see from up there, so I had to go. It was rough duty, wasn't it? I had to climb the bell tower so I could describe the stairwell. And you had to visit the Pitti Palace. I had you, to. You had to go to the Uffizi Gallery. I Gee, that's to. rough. It was. <laughs> and I had to taste the food, you know, and walk where she walked. She had, in your book, a daughter. Now, in real life, she had, what was it, two daughters, right? Two daughters and two sons. And two sons. Well, it's unclear as to whether she had one daughter with two names or two daughters. So it might be that this was the daughter, I mean, to some degree. Question for you then. We know how parents and children relate to one another today. What kind of information is there about the relationship of, say, a teenage girl and her mother in that era? Is there anything? I don't know of anything. I just know that the daughters had to marry who their parents told them to. I mean, that's just generally known. There's a hint in the book that some people married for love at that time. Was that true? Barely beginning. Just barely beginning. And if you had parents who were sensitive to that, there may have been an arranged marriage, which was also a love match. But there were other considerations that came first. If there was love, that was the bonus not the reason. Susan Freeland, you've taught writing for many years. Uh, you've also gone to the Asilomar Writers Consortium. Is that correct? That's right. What can someone teach in writing and what can't they teach? Oh, I'll have to take that from the point of view of what I have learned from others. The Asilomar Writers Consortium is a group of writers that have been together for 15 years and we critique each other's work orally. I've learned from them the difference between a close narrative stance and a distant narrative stance. If a person was cold, for example, a distant narrative would say something like, the very distant would be, the snow was falling and Joe Smith was cold. Closer would be, Joe Smith turned up his collar against the cold. Very close would be Joe Smith's thoughts saying, God, I'm freezing. Managing when to be close and when to be distant, when to talk about the snow, when to talk about the collar, when to talk about how his bones were freezing is one major thing that I learned 
and I think can be taught. It's not just instinctive. Uh, no, it, for me it wasn't. For me it wasn't. And I, I had to be guided to know how to read like a writer. Other writers don't have to. I just think I, I need and I'm open to all the help I can get. What about voice? Did you talk about voice at Asilomar? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When there is a phrase or a, even a single word that does not seem to come from the character but is imposed upon that character by the author, we try to nail it and eliminate from our writing those things. I would think that that would also include a point of view of the writer that may not fit at that particular moment, that the writer feels, i got to get this in. This is what I mean. Things like that. Yes, and when we are too prescriptive, we're hoping that our colleagues pointed out to us, my wonderful editor, Jane von Meeren at Viking Penguin, taught me so much and helped me eliminate some of the excess that I think many beginning writers tend to rely on, and then we, we learn that less is better sometimes. I'm still learning that. How long uh, was the original manuscript? How much came out of it then, of this book and of the Vermeer uh, book? None? Uh, nothing. Single phrases that came out, single words, uh, maybe even a couple paragraphs. But then my editor also is telling me, you need to build this into a scene. You can't slip over it like a, a quick narrative summary and then Artemisia had a baby and named her Palmyra. This is a major event in her life and will have an effect on the rest of the book. You need to develop that in a whole chapter. So it's not that the book shrank. The book actually got bigger, but it got better also because of her. In those early drafts, before you fully finish your research, this is going to be a nasty question. What you get wrong? What did I get wrong? Yeah. Oh, I know immediately. I often started a chapter. <laughs> You're smiling at me. But that's all right. This, if writers are listening, they'll, they'll understand this too, I'm sure. I often started a chapter with ruminations of a character rather than plunging the reader right into a scene. She nailed me on that time and time again. And also, at the end of a chapter, she said, bring it to a conclusion within the scene. Don't comment on it afterwards. In that sense, then, each chapter, I guess, becomes its own little story. Its own unit, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that, that would work particularly in an episodic novel such as this, which goes from one place to another. There's no overarching plot per se though there is a story. Yes, and I'm always very unclear as to the distinction between the term plot and story. I think plot has to do more with the complications and what prevents the character from uh, achieving what he or she wants. It's, it's an interesting point. I've been having several discussions with writer friends of mine about oh. the difference because you can't have... A story, whether it be a novel or a story, without a story, but you can certainly have one without a plot. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, from mm -hmm. Proust on down, you could certainly That's have right. one without a plot. That's right. And one thing that one uh, has to be careful about in writing historic fiction or in writing about a pre-existent life 
is that that life is not the story. One still has to find the story within the history and have that story have an arc and eliminate any history that doesn't contribute to the chosen story or the chosen themes one wishes to focus on. Then how conscious is that creation of a story? I mean, when you were writing The Passion of Artemisia and you were getting into the character, those overarching elements, how present were they in your mind, or, or did you only see them and refine them after the book was done? I think that happens after the first draft. Uh, the first draft is, is miserable for me anyway, and I'm just, I'm just grasping at scenes. And then maybe on the fifth draft, I can say to myself, this is the arc that I want to tell. Oh, maybe third draft, the themes that I want to deal with are beginning to emerge. But they're still emerging in the last. I often have taken some sentence toward the end of the book or the last third of the book. And if, every time I read the book over, I see that sentence and I say, yes, I've gotten to something there. You know, that's one of the cores of this story. Then I take something about that sentence and move it to the beginning of the book. And that gives me an arc. But I may not discover that until countless rewrites or, or readings of the book. It's sort of the equivalent of if you're going to use a gun at the last chapter in the first, you put it in the handbag so that it's there. That, that's right. Uh, for readers, if, if they want to f exactly find out where I, I did this, there is a reference to the Magnificat uh, and the line, my soul shall magnify the Lord. And she says to her father that uh, uh, he painted souls and that his paintings magnified the beauties of the world created by the Lord. Well, where did she get that idea? I then found a, a, a place where she heard the nuns singing that when she was younger. How constrained did you feel by fact? Uh, the early drafts, I felt very constrained until I found that I was uh, needing invented characters. The nuns are invented. She, she may have lived at a, a convent for a, a couple of years when she was a young girl. It was quite common. Her mother died when she was 12. But which particular nuns and what their characters were was purely invention. I remember really loving to see those two women take shape. But I do have to say, I had to wrench myself free of biography. Susan Vreeland, the passion of Artemisia takes her up to around the age of 40, yet she lived to be 60. What were the remaining 20 years of her life like? Did she do a lot of painting? Yes, she did. I take her up to the time that she had just moved to London, and she stayed there a number of years and then returned to Naples, where she had lived before. But, you know, even at the end of her life, there were still struggles for financial independence. There were times when she didn't need to and, and had a luxurious lifestyle. But at any moment, that could just come to a crashing halt if tastes changed and she had to develop skills that followed the tastes. So she always had 
the commercial aspect pressing upon her, I think, particularly in her later years. That's the life of the freelancer today. That's <laughs> it's right. It's not that different. You hinted at that toward the end of the book when she comments that she can't do the painting she wants anymore because styles have changed. That's right. They wanted ideal beauty. You know, that was a Renaissance concept. And the Baroque period, her period, was a period of wanting real individuals, realism. But then the art tastes in Naples, where she was beginning then to have friends and, and a solid network of contacts, again wanted the ideal figures. So she went through a period of her life where she used what the Italians called invenzione, and where her women were independent thinkers, where Lucretia was wondering, did I or did I not have to kill myself because I was raped, for example. She went through that period where she did those heroic women, and then after that, she painted more of what people wanted. There's a sadness about that for me, and so that's one reason why I stopped her life at the culmination of her forgiveness of her father. Susan Freeland, a passion of Artemisia has come out. Are you working on another book about a painter, or have you moved on to something else? Oh, there are so many painters I love. I'm still with art. My next book will be a short story collection about artists, existing artists, most of them Impressionists and Post-Impressionists, all told from the point of view of someone peripheral to the artist. For example, my Monet story is from the point of view of his gardener at Giverny, who tended the lily pond. A Cezanne story is from the point of view of a little boy who threw stones at him. A Berta Morisot story is from the point of view of the wet nurse she hired when she had a baby. That wet nurse living in the home and finding that Berta Morisot was maybe not so in love with her husband as she was with her husband's brother, Edward Manet. Then I have an Edward Manet story from the point of view of his wife, trying to find out with whom he was unfaithful. Are these stories in any way interrelated then? They're linked, some of them, but not all of them. And what about a novel down the road? Yes, I'm working on one of... Emily Carr. Now, she's not a well-known artist in the U.S., but she's almost a national icon in Canada. She was from British Columbia, and my, my story of Emily Carr's life, also again like Artemisia's, with many characters eliminated, my story of Emily deals with her friendships with Native Canadians, her trips to the Indian villages along the Inside Passage, and particularly a friendship with one Salish basket maker. So that's a big departure in that I have crossed the ocean and, uh, and I'm in my own continent, but I'm still in the realm of art. Susan Vreeland, any interest from Hollywood on uh, either Girl in Hyacinth Blue or the Artemisia book yet? Girl in Hyacinth Blue will be a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie early in 2003. Uh, apparently, they're going to film it in the Netherlands. There was uh, a little bit of interest so far in The Passion of Artemisia, but it's only been out a week. <laughs> so 
we're hoping that it attracts some attention. Susan Vreeland's next book was The Forest Lover, about the painter Emily Carr. It was followed by the linked short story collection Life Studies. Girl in Hyacinth Blue became a made-for-television film, Brush with Paint, starring Ellen Burstyn and Glenn Close. Her final novel, Lisette's List, was published in 2014. Set in the south of France during World War II, it featured as characters Pablo Picasso and Marc Chagall. The Passion of Artemisia never became a film. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>